The longer the House of Representatives remains in stasis, the closer the next budget deadline comes without any action to resolve it. There's lots at stake, including how the federal acquisition function will operate. Not that acquisition was getting any easier with so many new rules coming. For a look at the situation, federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen joins me now. And it seems like, again, the damsel is getting closer to the buzzsaw because here we are again, close to a shutdown. Tom, here we are again, and with so many variables, it's really difficult to predict what's going to happen precisely. But I think that both government contractors and their federal customers should absolutely prepare for, unfortunately, some not-so-good case scenarios. Uh, Right now, the government's funded through midnight, November 17th, which sounds like a long way away, but the House of Representatives is poised to take the next several days to, again try to get itself a Speaker of the House. And until they find a way forward from that impasse, Tom, there's not going to be an opportunity to work on a continuing resolution or 2024 appropriations bills in any meaningful way. And the closer you get to that deadline, the fewer good options are left. The opportunity to have a government shutdown could be back on the table by mid-November. Let's hope not. Uh, Because given the timing, if it's mid-November, then it could very well be into December uh, with a couple weeks worth of shutdown. But on the appropriation side, look, if we don't have House leadership on the Republican side, we can't really have meaningful discussions past a certain point on appropriations either. And what that means is that that December best case scenario that everybody kind of hopes by which appropriations will be done, that's looking less and less likely too which could easily push us into late winter, maybe early spring of 2024, before we find a FY24 appropriation. That's not good for national security. It's not good for a host of civilian agency things like VA benefits and getting Social Security checks and tax returns managed. So there's a lot to chew on here, Tom. Yes, and the longer the continuing resolution goes, set aside a shutdown, the shorter the actual fiscal year becomes in which to start new initiatives. And so you could get two effects. One, agencies can't get their programs off the ground that they were planning for that fiscal year as quickly. And also they tend to get a little bit conservative in spending the longer it drags on because of the uncertainty of future funding. So it's kind of a spiral downward in many ways, even if there's no shutdown, but you have longer and longer CRs followed by a shorter and shorter by definition, fiscal year. Well, Tom, that's exactly right. And we've talked a little bit before about how there are alternative sources of funding. Some of the alternative sources are limited to specific capital-intensive projects. Some of those funds will run out if they're not topped back up again. So you might have some money now, but in a couple of months, those funds may run dry unless Congress sets forth an appropriation that would indirectly cause those monies to be replenished. So I think that uh, you're looking at the government becoming more conservative over time. Uh, From a management standpoint, uh, this is not anything that a good government management group would want to see. And really putting good government management, not necessarily aside, but pairing it up with fiscal responsibility, you really would like to have an appropriation in place on time because That enables people to plan better. It enables people to operate the programs more efficiently. This is perhaps one of the least efficient ways to run a government. And you never really know if Congress might go ahead and say, you know, 
the situations, unfortunately, outside our borders right now are so dire that we're going to go ahead and pass a DOD and maybe a Homeland Security spending bill. They haven't really started talking about that yet. They've done it in the past. We'd have to see if they'll do it again now. But certainly the rest of the government, even under that scenario, would be sitting, waiting until everybody got all their other issues resolved before they could turn back to spending. My guest is Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And in the meantime, procurement itself, when it does occur, is not getting any easier because of the seemingly endless pile-on of new regulations and requirements from the White House. Tom, one of the reasons why this issue really caught my attention is an executive order that came out from the White House recently, maybe a directive, I think, rather, where they instructed the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, which is the agency inside the Office of Management and Budget that oversees the rulemaking process, they instructed OIRA to look at new rules in a way that would promote competition. And they did that without any apparent sense of irony, Tom. I think anyone who's tracked the regulatory agenda of this administration, particularly as it pertains to government procurement, had to get a little bit of a chuckle out of that directive. Because while on the one hand, they're telling people, well, we really want to promote competition. On the other, they're loading people up. There are two cybersecurity-related rules that are currently out for comment right now, Tom. There are a number of greenhouse gas and socioeconomic rules that are either out or are coming soon. And that just adds overall to the regulatory burden of government contractors And if you add to that regulatory burden, you're going to be discouraging competition. Fewer and fewer companies will decide that they can participate in the government market if the regulatory burden continues to get higher. And what you're left with are companies that do this for a living, the tried and true, established, entrenched government contractors. There's nothing wrong with that. These are all competent companies who really know what they're doing. But if you're looking for enhanced competition, if you're looking to try to encourage new market entries who have innovative solutions and enhanced competition, the administration really has to get back on one side of the page because right now they're on both. If it's formal rulemaking, then there is a chance to comment back. And it sounds like you're urging people, if there is any time in any of these proposed rules, to comment back. But some of them are not formal rulemaking. They're just policy types of questions. But even then, I think you can still push back a little bit. Tom, I really do believe that industry has an obligation to do just that. If you see procedures and policies that are coming down the road that are going to increase speed bumps and barriers to doing business, speak up. Absolutely, contractors should definitely comment on the rulemaking process. No contractor should think that submitting comments on a proposed or interim rule is going to have a negative impact on their business. The regulatory people simply don't talk to the business development people. They may be in the same government, but that's a little bit like saying that the Washington commanders are in the same league with the Philadelphia Eagles. They're both football teams, but they play on different levels. So too it is with reg writers and people in government uh, business, Tom. So go ahead and comment on those rules. Make sure that your voice is being heard. And if you see uh, something that's a new policy or hear that somebody's going to be doing something that could have a negative impact on your business, 
never assume that the government knows that it would have a negative impact. You know, government people have their own set of priorities and they look at things very differently from the private sector. And I'm, I'm not at all suggesting that one is better than the other. They both absolutely have their roles, Tom. But I think sometimes we lose track, whether we're on the government or industry side, that the people who we're sitting across the table from may have a very different point of view from our own. And it's important to keep that in mind so that we don't end up talking past each other. Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Thanks so much. Tom, thank you. And I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, 
I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. 
And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, 
thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.